0: And the team the brass. I'm Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio, my guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio, making his weekly Monday appearance. It's his weekly Monday appearance as the managing editor of Fangraphs.com, Dave Cameron. Dave Cameron is the guest on, on this edition of the program. As he does every week, Dave Cameron endeavors here to analyze all baseball. Of particular note, baseball's amateur draft. ...occurred this past Thursday through Saturday, an event which naturally facilitates considerable speculation about the future careers of those amateur players. One concept that Dave Cameron thinks ought to be omitted from those conversations is the concept of a player's ceiling. In a season, for example, which has seen a five foot six middle infielder, Jose Altuve, produce an isolated slugging figure above 200 for roughly half a season... The concept of player ceiling might not offer much utility. in another recent episodes. This one also features another installment of the Practical Analytics series. I asked Cameron a question about which I assume at least one other person has speculated idly. How does one evaluate one's own free time? In a shocking churn, that question actually bears some fruit with regard to baseball. We discussed the work weeks of Major League Baseball players and also how players and player agents might put a dollar per hour figure on a player's off-season time. The conversation also facilitates this exchange in which Dave Cameron reveals the depths of a father's love. I've been meant to believe, however, that when it is a child that belongs to you, you naturally feel some sort of affection for it. Yeah, that comes and goes. Those heartfelt sentiments and others like them in what follows. But first, a riveting sponsor's message. The Greek philosopher Epicure suggested that the most expedient and surest means by which to sustain one's happiness was not an unbridled pursuit of pleasure, but rather the avoidance of pain, the avoidance of pain, where the purchase of tickets for concerts and live sporting events is concerned, SeatGeek is of some assistance in this capacity. What SeatGeek does is to pull the tickets that are available at all the other sites into one place to aggregate them as it were, so that one is always able to find the lowest price. Furthermore, SeatGeek assesses a grade to every ticket based simultaneously on the price and also the quality of that ticket, so it's always possible to find underpriced seats to exploit the inefficiencies of the ticket-buying market, as it were. And finally, unlike StubHub, for example, ticket sites like StubHub, SeatGeek shows you the full ticket price from the beginning to the end of a transaction, never administering any mysterious fees or hidden charges. And for having endured this message, listeners of Fangraphs Audio are entitled to To a $20 rebate off their first SeatGeek purchase, here's how you claim it. Download the free SeatGeek app, go to the Settings tab and click Add a Promo Code, enter the promo code Fangraphs, that's F-A-N-G-R-A-P-H-S. SeatGeek will send you $20 after you've made your first ticket purchase. Download the free SeatGeek app and enter the promo code Fangraphs today for your nearest possible convenience. With which I've concluded the sponsor's message and also... Almost the entirety of this introduction, what is it? It's Fangraphs Audio, who is a feature managing editor of Fangraphs, Dave Cameron. When does it begin? Right now. I've got appointment three, not very far away, but I've got appointment three to get some uh, the new health care, get some new healthcare care okay
1: so this will be an abbreviated version.
0: Yeah, but we've been going pretty long I think the goal usually for us is 30 minutes, but I think we've hit almost uh, around 45 the last two.
1: Well, then I will talk less.
0: Yeah well, that's fine uh, yeah, we've also uh, but I don't I do not want to neglect the practical analytics portion of the program. Of course not Cameron and today it,
1: it is what people come for.
0: Yeah today uh, well we'll make it brief though, but here I remember recently you were sharing with me an anecdote, uh, regarding some home improvement um, uh, home improvement project you and your wife were conducting on your house you were attempting i think to to sand down a popcorn ceiling does that does that sound familiar
1: uh, we did that a few years ago but yeah
0: right yeah it was yeah. a few years ago but yeah. it, um what do you what do you do you scrape off the little popcorn pieces and then sand it down or
1: yeah well you have to like get the popcorn ceiling wet so uh, in our uh Scenario: We basically had to take a step ladder and a spray bottle, like a little, you know, uh, yeah. just a, yeah, a spray it. bottle. Everyone's yeah. a spray bottle. And so then you'd get up on the step ladder and spray the popcorn ceiling with water to get it wet, so that it would scrape off without damaging the ceiling. Uh-huh. And then you'd, you know, move the step ladder and get back on the step ladder and spray. It. it was really tedious work.
0: But so what? So I believe that you did this what You say like over a course of four weekends or something.
1: Yeah, it took us a long
0: time. A long time. And there were still, you, you, anyway, you did damage to your ceiling anyway that necessitated the, the visit, a visit from a, an actual qualified person.
1: Yeah, well, once we got all the popcorn off the ceiling and we went to attempt to paint the ceiling, uh, we realized we had, uh, damaged it in such a way that the paint wouldn't stick to the ceiling. So then we just had to call a professional painter. And when he was there, he was like, yeah, I would have scraped your popcorn ceiling off, uh, for like $100 and it would have taken me like two hours. Right. So at which point was... I wanted to punch myself in the face.
0: Yes, okay, good. And so, in in and that, that makes you similar to many of our listeners. That's <laughs> true. Okay. There's that
1: a long line. So. Yeah.
0: Uh, but here's here's where I wanted to get at. I've been thinking about this. Re- well, I, I I was thinking about that. I was contemplating that anecdote and, um of course, uh, I've been doing some own home improvements, but this is not necessarily about home improvements. What this is about is, is how one might go about the different ways one might go about value uh, evaluating one's free time. Yeah. Uh, because, uh, of course, depending on how much free time you have, there might be a if there's more demand for your time than and there's a shorter supply of it, you might you might uh, put on a higher uh, what uh, dollar per hour number. Right. Yep. Um, even if you're not particularly wealthy, I can remember as an undergraduate when i was positive that i was going to be a literary superstar at one point mm. i i regarded i had a very i had very little money and yet i regarded any sort of obligation um even if someone was going to pay me i would say no if i'm not making like 300 dollars per hour or 500 dollars per hour for whatever thing you want me to do which was no one was offering me that i said then i'm not going to do it because that's how much i am valuing my free time yeah what are so that's but that's of course uh, the product of a delusional person. But what's uh, for you? What are the considerations? I guess some traditional considerations, and then but then maybe also um, some other considerations regarding how one ought to value his or her free time.
1: Yeah, I mean, this is actually, uh, uh, something I've spent some time thinking about in the past, especially since having a child, because then your free time gets dramatically changed and you come into, uh, a, a situation where you have to pay someone else to watch your child with some frequency, whether it's, uh, <laughs> you know, a babysitter or, a nanny or daycare or, facility. Or a well-behaved dog? Is that is that a possibility? Uh, that would have to be one really well-behaved dog. Yeah, okay, right. um, also, probably not legal
0: yeah. in most states. Fair enough, fair enough. Uh,
1: so, yeah, I mean, once you get into the point where you're paying someone else to do something that's kind of your responsibility in some way, you're kind of uh – uh Making the trade-off of like, say, you know, say you're paying your nanny $15 an hour, right? You're assuming that with that hour of time, you can go make more than $15, uh, in order to come out ahead. Otherwise, you might as well just, you know, hang out with the kid yourself and not involve a third party. Um, and so I think for a lot of people with children, they have to make this calculation. Um, and we've had to make it recently. And so I think the, the kind of formula that I came up with is during the work week, I will value my time at roughly uh, my extra time above and beyond the hours that I'm already basically contractually obligated to work at double my hourly rate. So uh, mm-hmm. to, to add like a 10th or 11th or 12th hour of work during the day, I'm going to essentially consider that uh, overtime. Mm-hmm. And because I don't have a lot of free time, instead of paying myself time and a half, I'm paying myself double time. So I, I'm going to say if I have to uh, – put in an extra hour of work uh in order to justify paying someone else to watch the kid and paying potentially for you know someone to watch the dog if if the dog needs additional care or if I'm not able to uh exercise her in the proper way. Um, I'm gonna need double my hourly wage in order to give up weekday hours. On the weekend, I'd say it's probably closer to something like uh Time and a half because then there's, you know, the wife is off work, uh, there's potential to divide and conquer, so it's a little bit easier for me to give up.
0: Uh, well, there's so. also, so, so part of evaluating this, right, you have to determine, it's not just a, necessarily a one to one, like, say you were going to be making, say you, a person was making, uh, $20 an hour. Yeah. And then, and a, and a nanny costs $20 an hour. Right. There's also the, the other consideration, which is that you love your child. Well, we that's want not
1: to,
0: true for a while. <laughs> want to spend time
1: with it? Yeah. Have you? You this is uh, speaking of someone who's not a parent. Right no,
0: there. no, no. Yeah, and no, no. I mean, I'm I'm afraid. I I assume, I've been led to believe, however, that when it is a child that belongs to you, you naturally feel some sort of affection for it.
1: Yeah, that comes and goes.
0: <laughs> okay. So you have so you've put you, the price, the amount that you're willing to pay, or essentially not receive. To spend time with this organism you've created is roughly is roughly the the same amount you you make on an hourly basis.
1: Uh, well, I think so. If if you're close to the break-even point, most people would choose to not take the extra work Mm -hmm. Um, because if you're not coming out financially ahead, what's the point, right? Mm -hmm. So I think for most people, especially with children, uh, you need to make something significantly more. Or you need to be compensated significantly above and beyond the cost of your, you know, kind of abdication of your responsibilities. And so um, you can look at your costs and say, okay, you know, I have to pay gas money to get wherever I'm going. If I have to drive to the job, I have to, um, you know, pay for child care or pet care or whatever, like uh, some kind of external cost of the thing I could do myself that I can't do now – and then you add some multiplier on top of it. And and for me it's probably two to three X. For other people, maybe it's you know closer to ten X if they if they really uh love spending time with their children and, and really like put a super high value on it, maybe it needs to be dramatically higher. Yeah. Uh it, and it also probably depends on your financial situation, right? Like if the marginal value of a few extra dollars is really high to you if you're living paycheck to paycheck and you need to pay the bills, uh potentially you'd say, Okay, I only need to make you know a couple dollars an hour more than the cost. My net gain doesn't have to be that high because I really need those few dollars. Where if you're in a, a decent financial situation and you know the the difference between 25 or 50 extra dollars isn't going to change your life, you will probably buy the time instead.
0: Right, and it also matters probably. Uh, I mean, you you put it in you framed it in the form of children, but it could be any consideration of leisure time, right? Not not that to say that time spent with children is leisure time in 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 a, in a specific way. It's not. It's not, it's really not Yeah, but yeah. it is leisure time in the sense that this is time over which Over which you have control as opposed to an employer, for example.
1: Right. I mean, you can basically look at it as a transaction, right? Like you are buying and selling time when you work. And so if you have a significant amount of time and you have a large quantity to sell, then you should sell it at a lower rate than if you have a little bit of it. And so I think the, the less time you have available to sell, the higher a price you put upon it. So, you know. Uh, not not too different from any other marketplace. It's scarcity based, and and so for people who have a lot of free time, if you're you know an 18 year old who just graduated from high school and you don't start summer until this fall, you should probably sell your time at a pretty low rate because you have a lot of it and you could probably use some money.
0: What's uh how many hours do you think uh, the average baseball player works per week? Average major leaguer, and, and and I want you to think of all the times where like essentially his time is constrained by his work as opposed to um you know left being left to his own devices
1: right so i think if you say like what the the average player is required or expected to be at the ballpark something like six hours before first pitch Mm -hmm. five six hours somewhere in there um uh, it might be four it's it's something in that range in order for like you know stretching and getting ready and so you have some commuting time and like david Wright,
0: uh, david Wright has been hasn't he been showing up like, he basically can't leave the ballpark, given how much stretching he has to do in this sort of thing.
1: Yeah, there are mm-hmm. certainly players who get there even earlier. But I think the, the kind of, like, last-minute check-in is something like five or six hours before okay. for, before his pitch. Then you play a three-hour game, and then you're required to, you know, uh, hang around and have some media availability and potentially meet with your teammates or your coaches uh, for something like an hour after the game, right? So probably you're looking at something like 10 or 11 hours a day. Mm-hmm. Uh and this is a six-out-of-seven-day work week for the most part. Uh, you know, like there are some days where they get no days off. There are some where they get two. But for the most part, you say a player will work six or seven days a week. So you probably say a roughly 70-hour work week for a major league player mm-hmm. uh, spread out over, over a six-month period. So, um, you know, if you're looking at, say, uh, thirty was it a twenty-six week season plus then you have spring training. Uh, you, now you're looking at thirty, what is it, 36, 32 weeks probably. Uh, so thirty-two weeks at seventy hours a week. That's uh twenty-three hundred hours a a year. That's uh slightly more than a normal person working uh fifty weeks a year, forty hours a week.
0: Right, and of course there are, there because are, of uh, certain off season obligations as well some of them more explicitly defined like for example arizona fall league if you're you know a young player sure and, and, right some of them are less explicitly defined like you you know try work on this pitch or you need to stay in shape which are i don't know to what degree if you you might know this to what degree like how specific is like a workout plan for a player you know will like the team trainer give give a work a workout plan to a player
1: I think it probably depends on the veteranness of the player. So you're generally not going to go tell, you know, uh Clayton Kershaw, hey, man, here's what we're going to give tell you to do this winter. You really need to improve these things. For the most part, you're going to tell him to go home and sit home and rest his arm. And-
0: also, if you're Cy Young, do you sort of get a pass? You're like, yeah. Yeah, sure. yeah,
1: right. At some point, you're just going to reach a level of, like, I'm good. Yeah. You tell me what to do. Yeah. But if you're like, you know, uh I'm Jesus Montero, maybe a pretty good example of like a guy who basically played himself out of the big leagues, uh and and part of that was his conditioning. A few years ago, uh the Mariners I think told him, like, you need to drop like thirty pounds before spring training and here's what you need to eat and we're like hiring you a dietitian and like someone to work out with you and like here is a detailed plan of what you're gonna do every day. So there's a wide range in between Jesus Montero and Clayton Kershaw. I think it generally tends towards less oversight and just trusting the player to do the work that he feels he needs to do to get in the camp. And, you know, the responsibility is on him. If he shows up 30 pounds overweight, that's gonna be, uh, held against him. But, uh, you know, I think there are certain players who've been given more explicit recommendations for, for how they should spend their offseason.
0: How many players do you know of? I feel like this, these stories come out occasionally. I feel like it might have applied to Pablo Sandoval at one point. Yep. Where, where you, you say something to the effect of your employment, your the car, your contract that you hold is contingent on you meeting certain demands um, in terms of, well, body weight's the easiest one I suppose, but general, you know, fitness-related goals.
1: Yeah, so they can't actually make the contracts contingent. That's one of the, the hangups of, uh, oh. guaranteed contracts in baseball. They can apply performance bonuses, though. So they can oh, right. incentivize, incentivize, but not penalize. They can't take money away if you're too fat, but they can give you more money if you're, if you're not fat enough, or if you're, you know, skinny, I guess. You, uh, or fit, but, generally yeah, fit. Uh, right. So I think, uh, Pablo Sandoval had some, uh, BMI performance incentives in his contract. I'm guessing he didn't hit those. <laughs> I, think I don't know for sure, but I don't think he's getting paid
0: those those bonuses. Right. But at just at a certain point, of course, uh, the player might see. It. Of course, this is a question we were talking about evaluate, you know evaluating. I should say evaluating free time. Yeah. Players, especially those who have not had a contract, have not you know have not reached free agency or have not signed a link you know a lengthy and um, uh, you know healthy extension. The, those off-season hours, they're not getting—they're not getting compensated immediately, right?
1: So yeah. You
0: could say for every hour I do of exercise, for every hour I watch a film, right, that is likely going to have some sort of payoff in the future. Although it's pretty—it's an abstract relationship,
1: right? And I think that's one of the tricks—is like the player isn't going to see the tangible benefit from it right away. So if they say it's December, and you know they could go. Christmas caroling with their children or they could go, you know, spend two hours in the weight room. They don't actually know how much, you know, value they're going to get from a weight room exercise in December, uh, versus, uh, you know, just waiting until March to get in shape. So it's probably a slightly more difficult decision to say, okay, I'm going to focus on, uh, work in a time when there's no one around me forcing me to work out. There's no schedule. I'm kind of, uh, self-employed at this point. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I wouldn't be surprised if, um, some players had gone through and actually done this calculation of like how much money am I paying myself by going through and you know creating a regimented schedule for myself. Uh, but then there's other players who are probably just uh, like sweet. I got a four month vacation. I'll, I'll work out again in March.
0: There must be. Do you think that the uh, that player agents have some sort of thoughts on this? They say like if you do this much training over the off season, you know from the research that we have. We've, we've, um, we, we think that this would, that would be worth X dollars to you? Um,
1: I would guarantee you the Boris Corporation has done that kind of work. Okay. So they, uh, the Boris Corp actually has an off-season performance facility that players can come and train at. So, uh, uh, they actually provide facilities if players don't have their own home gym or something. Uh, and I think it's, it's pretty well known that there's a, been a kind of, uh, regular winter off-season uh, training camp in Miami over the last, I don't know, 10 years, where a lot of players, not necessarily teammates, uh get together and work out together. Um, I think Raul Labanez was one of the guys who kind of spearheaded this, where there were a lot of players who would go work out with Raul Labanez every winter. Um, so there are opportunities uh, made available, and and sometimes uh, the larger agencies would provide that kind of data that would say, hey, look, you know, if you put in... Say twenty or thirty or forty hours a week during the off season into getting into prime shape, it might earn you an extra, you know, five hundred thousand dollars per year in expected salary, and so then you can basically just do the math and be like, I'm I'm paying myself ten thousand dollars an hour to work out. That seems like a pretty good marginal. Yeah, it seems like marginal. Yeah. <laughs> it
0: seems good. And well, because I, I do know that uh, it's been mentioned one or two times, uh, maybe more than that, on the site that a lot of the uh, you know a lot of the, the conversations we have, a lot of the, the articles we we produce have i don't know if it's a team bias necessarily but again and i think we discussed this briefly last week there is a tendency to look at it from the perspective of a team because we tend to start off as fans right and if you're looking also for publicly available information that's probably the easiest way to do it but i but this is this is sort of if if you were going to develop a way that uh generally speaking analytics could be of some benefit to players looking at the the relationship between their time, especially their off-season time, and what that would return to them in terms of dollars, and or I suppose as an, even beyond that, terms of happiness, which is somewhat related, yeah. uh, that would be useful to them. It would be. Okay, you agree?
1: <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I didn't hear a question in there. So I, I it's uh, a statement agree with that, the sentiment.
0: You do okay, very good. Uh, hey. You wrote, uh, of course, the draft has happened since we last. I like spoke. that you
1: couldn't you, could, you couldn't pivot away from that fast enough.
0: Well, I don't know. It it was sort of a it was a dead end that I created, wasn't it?
1: You like basically ran us into a wall.
0: Yeah. All right. Well, let's move on. Uh, uh, let's move let's move from walls to ceilings, Dave Cameron. That okay. is a segue. All right. You wrote you you wrote this past week about uh, with regard to the draft uh, about pl- the idea of players' ceilings. Uh, this is essentially what like the hundredth percentile or ninetieth percentile of a player's potential?
1: Yeah. How would you define
0: ceiling, first of all?
1: I mean ceiling to me gives the connotation that there is a uh a barrier in place to passage, right? Like you cannot go from like the first floor to the second floor by jumping. If there is an actual ceiling in your way, you will hit your head and be (laughs) pushed back down. So to me it suggests that there is a it is an upper limit, it is a bound.
0: Right. So, it, so right. And so, for certain players, and I mean, what probably among the best players playing now, probably uh, uh, Ben Zobrist or Matt Carpenter. Yeah. Are Probably the best examples of this. Maybe yeah. Mookie Betts is there too, right. given his diminutive stature. Yeah. Right. Um, to say there are certain there are certain feats of which these players are incapable. Right? Like, if you look at me, you're like, that guy's not going to throw 95 miles per hour. And you are right. Yeah. Right? And, and the equivalent to that would be if you look at Mookie Betts and say, this guy is never going to hit 25 home runs in the majors.
1: Which now looks to not be correct.
0: Right. It looks not to be correct. But I assume that one – I mean, this is making an awful assumption. But I think it's probably fair to say that one talent evaluator at some point thought to himself – Mookie Betts is not going to hit 2500, uh, 20, home, Not going to hit twenty five hundred home runs. <laughs> All right. Well, and, that would be correct. He, uh, he's not going to hit twenty five home runs in the major leagues.
1: I think probably every talent evaluator okay. who saw Mookie Betts saw said that.
0: Right. So, the, but but he appears to be very much on his way of doing. It. And you, I'm sure that the same thing was. You know, I mean, probably people said of Ben Zobrist, not even when he was. An amateur still. Not yeah. even when he was in the minor leagues still.
1: Yeah, um, when he a big leaguer.
0: But yes, because his first like two and a half seasons yeah. as a was, major leaguer. He was terrible. He was pretty bad. Yeah. yeah. He was pretty bad. Yeah. Um, And yet uh, he was continued to give, give, be given playing time, I guess, because he was on a kind of bad race team as well. Right. So, they, they didn't have anything to lose. Right. And he's like, and he's still, well, this is actually interesting. He's still useful because he could play a d- bunch of different positions.
1: Well, he's still useful because he's one of the best hitters in baseball.
0: Well, now he's no, no. Now he's useful, but even yeah. at the time,
1: yeah, right. Back then, he had positional versatility.
0: Right, so you that's least, what
1: got him to the big league He yeah.
0: was mediocre Back. in a number of different ways.
1: Like he basically was a, a low, uh, a low strikeout guy who could right. slap the ball around the field. And they're like, look, this guy can play a couple of infield positions, not well, but he can play mm-hmm. a couple of spots, and he doesn't strike out that much, so we can stick him in the lineup, and, and he'll hit two seventy.
0: Right. So, so ceiling is a word that is utilized. Um, in discussions of prospects. Yeah. Um to talk about probably the upper bound of their physical capabilities. Right. Does that seem fair? Yeah, I okay. think so. What do you, and, and you say this has, this does not have a ton of utility, why?
1: So I think the word feeling, like, uh, uh just, infers or um, suggests that we know more than we do, right? It, it it brings some kind of element of certainty with it. Like you say, okay, this is a ceiling. It is an impassable barrier. Uh, it's an impenetrable wall. We know that this player cannot do more than this. Mm. But we don't actually know that. Like Jose Altuve turning into a power hitter, is like the best example possible of, we don't actually know anything. <laughs> like, in terms of like, what's possible and what's not possible, absolutely anything is possible if a 5-6 slap hitting, you know, contact oriented second baseman can have run a 250 ISO for half a, half a season. And, right. Like, you know, turn into one of the best hitting second basemen in baseball, not just because he's fast and slaps singles everywhere, but because he's like learned how to pull the ball for power. So when you have guys like Altuve and Betts and Zobrist and Carpenter, there's just too many of these guys out there. Um, I think Jeff Sullivan last year wrote a post kind of like where do big leaguers come from? And he noted that like two-thirds of, of major league good major league players were also considered good prospects. But right. that means one-third of them weren't, right? Like right. 30% of the population were basically written off as like, nah, that guy's never going to do anything. Paul Goldschmidt, even though he crushed the minor leagues, was never considered a top prospect. Now he's the best first baseman in baseball or one of the best first basemen in mm-hmm. baseball anyway. There are just too many of these guys for us to act like we should be certain about what a player's upper limit can be. Because these skills change. I think like, we can say with some certainty what a player is at some point. Right? Like, we can go watch them and be like, right now this guy throws 88 to 92 with a sinker and a slider, and he looks like he's gonna be a good pitcher. And like, Noah Syndergaard a couple of years ago when the Blue Jays traded him. You know, good power arm, low 90s, good curveball, questionable command, uh, that's what he was. And now, he's 98 to 102 with a 94 mile an hour slider, and he's unhittable. Like, that's not what Noah Sindergaard was three years ago.
0: Do you want to talk about what what James Paxton wasn't three weeks ago?
1: Right. I I mean, James Paxton was a a bust, (laughs) uh, not pitching well in Tacoma to start the season, and now he's throwing 101 in the big leagues. (laughs) Like In a a month, (laughs) that changed. Right. And And uh,
0: Matt Matt Shoemaker's throwing 94 now, I saw the other day.
1: I mean, it's just there's so many examples of guys undergoing significant changes to their underlying skill set that we can't – with certainty, look at a guy and say, you can never get beyond this level because we don't know what they're going to be in the future. We can say what they are now, and like based on your current set of skills and what you can do, we don't think you'll be able to perform outside of this range, but we should acknowledge that their skills can change, yeah. and they do pretty regularly. So how
0: do you want to talk about it? Because there, I think there are ways where we could be precise, yeah. but would also not be particularly succinct. Like we could say, we could talk about probabilistic outcomes, right? but- I don't know that 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 phrase is going to uh, essentially uh, trickle down to the to the field to the backfields.
1: Right. No, I, I agree. I think like I, I see the utility in the idea that Ceiling is trying to get across. I'm not trying to say like that every player has the same upside or the same potential for for reaching that that upside. Like Bryce Harper was clearly identified as like a young teenager as a guy with top shelf power, and it's clearly true. And it's not something that we should have been like, well, we don't actually know anything. Bryce Harper's gonna, you know, hit for some range of power that's the same as Jose Altuve. Like that's, that's not the case and I'm not arguing for that. But I do think that we should maybe consider replacing the certainty of, of what ceiling suggests and think about like, okay, uh, it, if we're gonna talk about this idea of like a range of potential outcomes and we wanna communicate the idea that we don't know how a player is going to develop over the next five, six, seven years. How do we talk about that without saying that we have some firm idea of what the upper limit of his abilities are, what kind of development he could go under? I don't necessarily know that I have a better term, other than I think that ceiling is not a good one. Mm-hmm. Like Upside, I guess, is probably a little bit cleaner in that it kind of gives um, the same idea without uh, potentially putting a cap on things. But at the same time, Everyone's upside is apparently an all-star player or a high-level performer. Uh, when you have, you know, Jake Arrieta go from, you know, back-end starter with command problems to dominant, young guy who doesn't give up runs for a year.
0: Well, uh, right, last question. Um, then I got to go check on healthcare, Dave Cameron. I got to get myself some healthcare. Last question. It does seem when we talk about uh, Matt Carpenter, for example, Ben Zobrist, Mookie Betts, uh, they've all developed unexpected power. Yeah. They all also possess what, what I would say above average to plus uh, contact ability and control of the strike zone. Right. And I'm, and I feel like that, um, this is uber anecdotal, yeah. but I do feel as though we see more players going from the, this, uh, this high contact control sort of skill set and developing power in that direction, from say the Joey Gallo skill set, where the power is obvious, but the ability to make contact, um, I feel like I, I feel like the players are, do not develop the contact ability. They don't they don't grow into contact.
1: I think that's absolutely true. Okay. Is uh, contact rate is something that is very difficult to change. Your swing is kind of your swing to some regard. You can change it, but it does not appear that players have as much ability to shift from a. John Carlos Stanton level contact ability to a Mookie Betts kind of contact level. We just don't see those dramatic changes. And it's your
0: but, brain too, right? I mean, isn't your brain involved in that?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's like how fast your mind fires when it sees a pitch and how well it picks up the spin of the ball and the location of the ball and tells you, you know, your hand-eye coordination and how, how quickly you can get the bat through the zone. Um, it, right, there's a lot of uh, neuroscience that goes into that, that ability, and I think there are, especially with bigger guys, they're just mechanically not capable of uh, making contact with as many of the swings as, say, a smaller guy who uh, isn't taking as uh, a big uppercut of a swing and and kind of is spraying the ball all over the field has a better chance to put the bat on the ball. And when those guys, kind of like Matt Carpenter has done, figure out that they don't have to take that spray swing on every pitch, but uh, they can ambush some fastballs, especially if they get kind of the scouting report on them becomes, oh, yeah, no problem, this guy's not going to hit for any power. And then occasionally they take one of these uppercut swings and they hit the ball 400 feet. That can uh, turn them into something more than they, would. they were, and I think it's difficult for a, contact, for a slugger to kind of add in that contact swing occasionally.
0: All right, Dave Cameron. That concludes uh, this edition of Fangraphs Audio. You have uh, you have fulfilled your obligation. That's because you need to go uh, get healthcare. I need to go get care. Yeah. Okay. Hey, Dave. Thanks a lot. You're welcome. That has been managing editor Fangraphs Dave Cameron. I'm Carson Sestouli. This has been Fangraphs Audio.